Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. This month, we read No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention by Reed Hastings and Aaron Meyer. No Rules Rules goes into the details of Netflix's corporate culture of freedom and responsibility. Hastings and Meyer relate how Netflix achieved this culture and espouse its many supposed benefits. It includes some controversial policies and harsh realities for employees, and we'll dig into all of that today. But before we do, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. Hi, I'm Eli Mitchell. I'm a management consultant. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So let's talk about the authors first and where they're coming from. Who's Reed Hastings? So Reed Hastings was born in Boston in 1960 and grew up in that area. He sold vacuum cleaners door to door for a year before attending Bowdoin College in Maine, where he studied math. He actually went through marine training and OCS school, but or officer candidate school, but never completed the training or was commissioned into the Marines. Instead, he joined the Peace Corps and taught math in Swaziland. He ultimately went to Stanford, where he got a master's in computer science, and then worked briefly at Schlumberger and Adaptive Technology before founding his first company, Pure Software, which made troubleshooting software. He served as CEO there. The company IPO'd in 1995, had a merger, and then was ultimately acquired by Rational Software, their largest competitor, for $750 million in 1997. He served briefly as the CTO at Rational Software, but then uh, founded Netflix in 1997 with Mark Randolph. He has been the CEO of Netflix since 1999, taking over from Mark after a couple of years. And yeah, uh, it was really fascinating to, to hear from his perspective in this book. And there's actually another author as well. Who's Aaron Meyer? Yeah. So Aaron Meyer was born in Minnesota in 1971. Like Reed, she was a Peace Corps volunteer teaching English in Botswana. She worked in HR at a number of companies, including McKesson and Appearing Global, before becoming a professor at INSEAD, where she teaches cross-cultural management. Um, prior to writing No Rules Rules, she was best known for writing The Culture Map, which Reed actually had all of his executives read and uh, discuss with Aaron at a, at a retreat. And that's actually the, how they got to know each other and, and ultimately write this book together. Uh, she lives in Paris at this point. And we should mention that the book has this really interesting format where it really clearly demarcates which author is writing which section of each chapter. So you're getting both authors' impression from their own voice, and there's almost like a kind of dialogue going back and forth between the two of them within the chapters. Okay, I think most of our listeners are familiar with Netflix. But can we just give a really basic overview of the history of Netflix and how it came to be as successful as it is today? Yeah, sure. So Netflix is the most popular subscription streaming service in the world with 195 million paid subscribers. It was founded in 1997, originally as a DVD rental by mail company by uh, Reed Hastings and, and Mark Randolph. In the spring of 2001, the internet bubble popped and they were actually forced to lay off one third of the workforce, a seminal moment in the cultural progression that we'll discuss more later, I'm sure. Netflix ultimately bounced back and was able to IPO in 2002. In 2007, they added a streaming service to the DVD by mail service and pivoted to content creation ultimately in 2013 when they produced House of Cards. 
They now operate in over 190 countries, and they were expected to spend $17 billion on content production this year. They're currently valued at $230 billion. It's a pretty amazing journey they've been on. So this book is all about the corporate culture of Netflix. It's not actually a history of Netflix as a corporation. So before we get into all the specifics, I'm wondering if both of you in just a few sentences could describe your impression of the corporate culture at Netflix based on your readings in this book and your outside knowledge of it as well. Sure. So this is something that, you know, I had said last uh, month that I was really excited to read this book, I think, because there's a lore of the Netflix corporate culture and including their 190 or so slide deck of their culture that's available online that you see. And I think I had the same impression that Erin Meyer says she has in the intro, which is you read that deck and it seems um, hyper-masculine and also incredibly competitive because some of the terminology that they use uh, that comes across really strong in that deck. And then it goes into more detail in this book. But that's the lore of it. Within the book, what they do is they focus on the freedom and responsibility uh, within the culture. And that essentially, because it is a creative company, that they need employees to be able to be creative. And they say that they do this in three ways. First, by building up talent density, which I'm sure we'll get into uh, more detail as to what they actually mean by that. Second, with increasing candor. And then finally, by reducing controls. And the book actually goes through kind of these three themes in increasing detail. So it's just how do you initially build up talent density and increase candor and remove controls, uh, such as high-level controls? And then how do you strengthen talent density, increase the candor, and release even more controls? And then how do you max up each of those? So I, you know, I thought it was interesting how the book kind of really uh, reiterated that over and over again, that it's about having the right people and then essentially allowing them to uh, have the responsibility to make their own decisions. Absolutely. So let's start with talent density, because there's certain prerequisites that we need, as you said, Eli, to get to that point of giving employees freedom and responsibility. And the first is talent density. What is talent density? Sure. So in the book, Reed explains how he came to understand talent density. And I don't know if he coined the term talent density um, or if it's just when he kind of came to realize this. And the anecdote is specifically around Netflix having a round of layoffs in 2001 when they had to reduce the workforce by 30%. And for him, this was incredibly painful leading up to it. You know, he was very stressed, lost a lot of sleep. Ultimately, what they decided to do was apply what they called a keeper test, which allowed them to really identify who was the 30% like not uh, outstanding members of the workforce, which means that there were people who were good who were average uh, performers or even above average performers, but not the most outstanding performers that were laid off in 2001. And then what happened was they realized a few months later, even though they had 30% fewer employees, they were actually being more productive and they had better outcomes. And Reed and uh, the CHRO came to identify that this was talent density because 
they had a stronger group of individuals in the organization who really uh, fed off of each other, I think is what they emphasize here is if you have a group of really, really outstanding people, they're all going to raise each other up rather than having the team where, you know, there's one low performer on the team, the manager has to spend all of their time with that low performer. Uh, the other people on the team become discouraged seeing like that person makes as much money or something as them. Uh, so the idea of talent density is get a group of really, really high performers and just set the bar high so that everyone it performs at the top of what they're able to do. But how do you get there? How do you get to this team of really, really high performers? Yeah, so there's a couple ways that he talks about the steps that the company takes to get there. One is something that Eli briefly brought up, that idea of the keeper test. The keeper test is really the concept that would you fight to keep this person if they were to say they were going to leave? And if the answer to that is no, then you should offer them a generous severance and send them on their way. And so if it's, if they're not so good that you're going to fight to keep them, then you need to get rid of them now because that's how we keep that really high talent density. The second step is compensation. And so they do a big push around paying top of personal market. And so that basically means whatever anyone else would pay, like at the very, very highest level, we will like match whatever that that top level is. We want to be the highest paying place or at least on par with the highest paying places. And they actually have a very strange culture around encouraging employees to talk to recruiters, to even take interviews at other places to find out what market is. And they actually have a database that everyone can input information into so that the company does know. And so compensation is, again, purely driven by top of personal market. It shouldn't get changed based off of your effort, your performance. It's really just if you're the best person for this job in the world, then you know you should get paid at the highest level for what that job is. And they encourage the employees to help give them data so that they can actually match that. I'll just say I... I loved this idea of talent intensity. And I think if I think back on my career, I've had one team specifically that really probably achieved this talent density that Reed talks about. And it was an absolutely amazing team to work for. But I, I just don't know how actual realistic it is. And, and I'm curious what your experience is. You know, he, he explains how they hire, how they pay top of market in this keeper test. But is this something that you guys think is actually realistic? So this was actually my main criticism of the book. I'm not sure that most companies can actually achieve a very high talent density. The reason being that not every company, unlike Netflix, has tons of people knocking down the door to work there. There are creative companies, companies that are involved in fields where people are doing similar work even to some of the work being done at Netflix that just don't have this huge amount of applicants for every open position. And to achieve talent density, Netflix basically gets rid of what they call adequate. And sometimes in the book, they kind of interchangeably use the word good. They get rid of good employees to make room for great employees. But if you're not getting a lot of applicants to begin with or enough qualified applicants, let's say, to begin with, then you can't afford to be getting rid of your good employees because there might not be great employees waiting to take their places. And so, of course, you could say, well, maybe if you paid more, you'd have more great employees that wanted to work there. Maybe if you change the rest of your culture, you'd have more great employees that want to work there. Maybe there's some creative companies, that, and I know that the, of creative companies that just don't have 
enough profit margin to be paying top of market. So I don't think that this prerequisite that's supposed to be there for everything else that follows in the book is even possible for a large amount of companies. I definitely agree that it is not realistic to say that every company can act in this way. And Kopech already mentioned that he does qualify it and say there are obviously certain areas where if you're like a manufacturing plant, um, areas where you need to have very low defect levels, then this kind of an approach doesn't work. Although this is less focused on talent density than um, the freedom and, and responsibility, uh, responsibility that Eli was talking about previously. But the difference, I think, is that when you do have that culture of truly great people, I do think it's true that you get much more done than than with the good. And so basically what Reed claims is you may have fewer people actually as a result. You may not hire quite as many people because you do have to pay top of market. But when you do get, you know, the the quintessential 10x engineer, he says it, it might be really a 10,000x engineer, like that the the really best people can add so much more value that they do pay for themselves at those very, very high levels. So I think it would be really cool to work at a company that had such incredibly high talent density. And I would say I have worked at some places that do have quite high talent density, but I also didn't work at a place that had quite the culture of candor and, and other aspects that, that made it so intense. And I'm not sure that I would necessarily actually enjoy the whole culture that, that they're proposing for, for Netflix. So I guess what I would say is I would, I would love to work at a place that had super high talent density. I think getting rid of people that are good does feel like a little bit like cruel, but I, I can kind of understand it too. I, I have, you know, had some experiences in the past where I've worked with someone who's perfectly adequate at their job, but that doesn't mean that we couldn't find someone, someone better for it. But, you know, they were a nice person. I kept working with them and maybe I would have been better off saying like, you know, maybe you should find even a different position within the company that suits your, your skill set better. And instead, you know, I, didn't want to, you know, break up that relationship, have a negative conversation. So, you know, I, I can understand where you would come from in it. And I'm not sure how well I could actually thrive in it. But I do think it would be a, a really cool experiment to, to have that experience, at least for, you know, three months or something. I wish I could could go back and do an internship at Netflix or something. One thing I also want to call out just, I guess, before we move away from the topic of talent density is on, on the pay scale. So we talked about paying top of personal market. One thing that I didn't know is that they don't pay bonuses. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, the logic that he explained as to why they don't pay bonuses is essentially a bunch of research out there that shows that financial incentives don't actually drive creativity. And since they're a creative company, they have recognized that you know if you offer somebody $100,000 for coming up with a great idea, that doesn't actually mean that they're going to come up with a great idea. So they use compensation to ensure that people are comfortable, to ensure that people come there and want to work there, and then that they're not distracted by their compensation or their finances, but that they don't actually use it to incentivize innovation. And that was something that I have... I will say that I've actually been exposed to the research that was referenced there once, but I've never actually heard of it being used in reality, because I think that most companies are just so tied to having to pay bonuses. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting, too. And honestly, maybe one of the only companies I've ever heard of that that doesn't seem to have bonuses at all. Although I do wonder if that's fully true. I especially am curious about some of the the movie production and stuff like that, if they 
if they do give any incentives to actors. I, I know that ultimately Netflix owns it. And so it's not like the the same structure of like traditional Hollywood. So I guess maybe even in those cases, it really is just they pay top of personal market. You know, if you made $50 million on your last movie, we're still going to pay you that 50 million, but we're not going to actually structure it in like a, a bonus based way. It's just a, a fixed thing. I think they do pay uh, equity as part of the the compensation also. So in some ways, you know, given the incredible growth of the stock price, people have kind of gotten like some degree of a, a minor bonus, assuming that they that they held the equity, I guess. Let me blow both your minds. We don't just not have bonuses. We voted away our own um, performance-based raises. So we no longer have raises based on performance. At, we've, as a faculty senate, we got rid of them. Wait, what was the vote? It was like a huge margin, like the majority this and almost all of our votes are almost unanimous. But anyway, it's kind of a one party state. But uh, we we voted. We had a vote like, do you want to still have performance based raises? And we voted no, we no longer want to have performance based raises. I, I'm not going to tell you how I voted, but you could probably guess. <laughs> so, you, <laughs> so you just have cost of living raises? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, so it's the ideas that like, who is to say who's really like deserving of more of our limited pool of money and not that, you know, in education, money's been tight the last few years anyway. But the thinking was just that like everyone deserves it. Who's to say who's doing a better job than who? So. Well, look at you. You're well on your way to being like Netflix because they also don't do performance based races, right? (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. All right. So we've talked a bit about talent density. Now let's talk about candor. Now, candor is the next element that you need as a prerequisite to eventually get to a culture of freedom and responsibility. And I think we all know what the word candor means, but what does Reed mean when he talks about candor? So I I feel like I just need to say here that to, to answer the question, what he means is essentially making sure that you are giving feedback, that you are giving actionable and helpful feedback. He actually talks about the four A's of feedback um, with aim to assist and actionable as a feedback that you give. And then when you receive feedback that you appreciate it and you accept or discard it. And I think that's what he's getting at with candor. But the reason that I wanted to jump in here is because I felt like all of this made sense as I was reading the book. And I was like, oh yeah, it would be great to like get that feedback right away and that it's actionable. And then throughout the book, they would have examples of, you know, quotes from meetings. Erin Meyer shared examples of things that uh, people said to her directly as she was doing interviews and presentations at the company. And they would use example emails. And basically every single time I read one of those, I was like, oh my God, that is so harsh. (laughs) Like it was, it just like starts the email off of, I attended your presentation yesterday and you really did not land the message. There was no like, I thought that like this part was helpful, which I guess, you know, at the end of the book, they talk about cultural mapping. So I guess me as an American, I want to hear more of the three positives for every negative in the feedback. But I, you know, one one thing that was helpful in the book was all of the examples that they provided. And I was just really shocked at the candor in each of those examples. Yeah, I I found it interesting. I think I do appreciate candor and I do appreciate critical feedback, but I do think it's really hard to create a culture where everyone's going to feel comfortable in this. And so I I don't know. I think it's interesting that Netflix has seems to have managed to to create this culture where 
people really do feel comfortable giving, you know, read very critical feedback, you know, in person, you know, by name. And I think it's it's an interesting way to to work, but I'm not sure, how, again, uh, how realistic it is for like every kind of company. So I think a lot of people are going to be really uncomfortable in this situation of, you know, having so much critical feedback coming at you. For me personally, I am have been the most appreciative when bosses have given me like direct critical feedback shortly after a meeting about how I could have done better. But to that point, when they they give the story later in the book of a, a Dutch colleague giving feedback to an American and just like just saying, oh, you basically talked the whole time and you didn't let other people speak, that probably would have struck me as like, oh, this was a really bad meeting as as it seems like the guy did read it. And instead, I to Eli's point, I, I probably would have needed them to say, oh, I thought that went great, but it could have been a little bit better if you'd done this. And so I think that that's fine too. And he does actually add on to the A's later, which is adapt to the culture. And so he does recognize that in certain cultures, people really aren't as comfortable with this. Now, they still push them towards a lot of that candor, but they do recognize that just because it might have worked in Netflix in Los Gatos, it doesn't mean that it is going to work in Tokyo to use exactly the same kind of speech. So you do need to you know, be aware of the cultural environment you're in and do give that critical feedback, but in a way that people are able to accept it and not just freeze or freak out. Yeah. And then I'll also call out that throughout the book, Reed also talks about candor as meaning organizational transparency. So for example, that they are very open about sharing their P&L and revenue and such actually even before quarterly earnings are announced to Wall Street. And this, you know, they obviously did this before they were a public company, but they've continued that being a public company. And there was a really interesting part of the book I thought that was this transparency quiz, essentially, where Aaron asked Reed four questions of setting up, like, what would you do in this situation? How transparent are you? Because I think that most people would say, like, oh, yeah, I'm all for transparency. And they even say this in the book, like, no one is going to say, like, oh, I prefer an organization that is secretive and closed doors and doesn't have transparency. But then when you set up this quiz, uh, some of those questions, I was a bit surprised at just how transparent the org was. Um, I don't know if it's worth it to go through some of those questions. And I'm curious what each of you felt when you were reading through that quiz. I actually agreed with basically all of Reed's decisions in that quiz. When we're talking about these two different sides to candor, there, as you mentioned, Eli, there's both the organizational side, the transparency throughout the organization, and then there's the kind of personal while you're working with somebody and you just give them feedback right away about how they're doing. I found that part a little bit more shocking. I'm used to kind of extreme candor in getting anonymous student reviews every semester and writing my books and getting reviews on the internet from people who don't care about how I feel personally about what they write. So I'm used to like pretty strong candor, but I, I would be kind of shocked like at work to for in the middle of me giving a presentation as is one of the examples in the book for somebody to just, you know, tell me in between, uh, you know, me walking out into the audience, maybe in the middle of it during a break and just say, oh, by the way, you're doing all of this wrong. You should be doing it another way. I think it to me, it felt kind of like what it must be like to become a celebrity suddenly and get suddenly famous. Like you're just being thrown into a culture like that, like as somebody who didn't work in a culture like that before, you would just be kind of shocked how people are treating you and how people are approaching you. 
And I think it would take a significant amount of adjustment. And I don't think every person is actually suited for that. Like, yes, you can try to uh, impose this culture on all of your employees, but some people just have thinner skin than others. And that's, you're not going to undo like 25 years of having a thin skin because you suddenly start working at Netflix. So I have concerns about how the mental health of some employees could be affected by being thrown into this culture, seemingly not being in it before because most companies don't have anything like that. Yeah. And they, that is also an element with the keeper test they talk about. And I think that the Aaron interviewed two employees who said, you know, their first year at Netflix, they were just terrified every day that they were going to get fired because this keeper test just seemed a bit unclear and unfair to people that they were like, well, am I not being an outstanding star performer right now? And also, I, I would just add on to that something that surprised me a bit throughout the book is that performance ratings, the performance rating system at Netflix isn't that clear or transparent, or, or I guess more accurately, there is no performance rating system, right? So there aren't actual annual reviews where you're told what your rating is, part of the fact that they don't have performance bonuses. Uh, there are 360 reviews and written and in person, which it sounds terrifying. But at, at an individual level, it's all just like written down. Uh, you don't actually see a numeric score. And me as a very quantitative person, I feel like that's the a numeric score would really help there. I actually, I mean, my company, I think, prides itself on being a very feedback-driven culture. And it, I certainly see that it's tough for some people. It feels different from Netflix, though. And I think what is so different about it is that it is so quantitative. There are probably 30 to 50 subscores that somebody is rated on at least every three months. And me like now being in a manager role, it's really overwhelming that you have to choose a one through five rating on each of those subscores. And then you have to defend it and tell the individual about it. And I think I've been in a position as a manager where it's hard to give that feedback. And it, you know, it's clear that the other person doesn't feel comfortable with it. I've also received it. And I, I am laughing because during COVID, I've been working a lot with a European team that is so direct in how they give feedback. Like in my first day of working with this new European partner that I'm working with, she basically called me up and was like, that email that you wrote, like, that's terrible. That wasn't written to be helpful for me. That was written for you. You can't send me things like that. And like, that was what she said. And I was just like, I just need to get off the phone and walk away from my computer right now. I'm so happy to be working remotely. And I I think it would be really tough, honestly, uh, with the culture of Netflix of what's shown in the book to have that, but even worse every day. But I guess the people that are there do seem to appreciate it. The biased selection of people who participated in the book seem to appreciate it. Um, so we, we don't have uh, some kind of empirical study here to see if most employees really appreciate it. But no, I agree with all your points, Eli. Absolutely. Yeah. We do have the data on attrition, though, which was apparently actually lower than other companies, but they are also paying top of market. So that could be that people don't like the culture, but they like the really good pay. And, and that's the reason why they're keeping them. But it is at least one data point to indicate like people aren't, you know, actually leaving at faster rates. We would need to run a regression. OK, <laughs> uh, so uh, so we've Wait, talked a little bit about 
I just, I, I do just need to say that I, I feel like in so many of these books, I get annoyed because we're reading from the perspective of the CEO. And I always say, I wish I knew like what the lowest level employee thinks. And Aaron actually does interview lower level employees. So it's just true. It is the employees that chose to participate, chose to have their names, uh, were willing to be interviewed by Aaron for the book. But at least it's not a book that we're only hearing from the CEO. I totally agree. But one of my criticisms of the book is that Aaron seems to always agree with Reed. There's a couple areas where she like pushes back a little bit and she's kind of like tempers how enthusiastic he is about a policy. But in general, she never strongly disagrees with him and she never contradicts him. So I don't know how independent she really was, but or maybe she just happened to agree with him about everything in the book. I don't know. Um, But it didn't come across to me as um, I did appreciate the two voices. And I think she added a lot from having an academic perspective and ha- bringing in ideas from other companies that matched the experience at Netflix. But I just don't know how independent she really was of, of Reed's thinking. Okay, so we've talked about these two essential ingredients for a culture of freedom and responsibility, candor and talent density. Once you achieve those first two ingredients, you can start to kind of let loose a little bit on some of your policies. So at Netflix, they do not have a vacation policy and signing contracts doesn't generally even require the approval of your manager. How do these two things work? How can you, let's start with vacation policy. How can you not have a vacation policy? What does that even mean? So the... Actual policy, I think, is just unlimited vacation. As far as I know, Netflix was one of the first companies to do this. I feel like it's actually become fairly more widespread at this point. And I think a lot of that actually just has to do with accounting, (laughs) to be perfectly frank. But the way it works at Netflix is that you can take whatever vacation you want. It is just subject to discussion with your manager. And so managers are ultimately able to set expectations on on how vacation works. Um, They did talk about like one specific example where someone in the finance department had taken off January and, you know, that was when they needed to do all the like end of year financial reporting. And so that was like a huge problem. And Reed was just like, yeah, you should you shouldn't have let them do that. You should have told them beforehand that they couldn't do that. And so I guess the point isn't necessarily like you can always do whatever you want, but that the central corporate structure doesn't want to say you have X hours of PTO that can be allocated over this period of time and you can roll over, you know, 40 of them to next year if you don't satisfy it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess for me personally, the thing that sounds like it makes it work is that executives do take long vacations and talk about it a lot. So he he harps on that a lot, that that's critical to actually making this work because otherwise it can quickly just become no one's taking any vacation now because they don't have like the allocated you know number of days that they are expected to take. And I think that would be really bad because I do think burnout is a problem. And I do think, you know, having some time away from work to clear your head is important to, you know, the success of, of everyone in a company too. You do need that, that opportunity to reset. And so I'm just skeptical that that culture would necessarily take place everywhere. So I'm not sure that every company that goes to a unlimited vacation time actually does still have people taking meaningful amounts. And I think a lot of cases it does just become a culture of, you know, work all the time, even though, sure, you have that benefit. And then from an accounting perspective, it's just easier because you don't have to like deal with it on your books of like, oh, I have this accrued PTO that um, my employees have, which, you know, sits on my balance sheet and things like that. And so I think that's a big part of why companies are doing it now. And I wonder how many of them are 
actually embracing it in the same way that Netflix seems to have, where people really are taking a lot of meaningful vacation. And some people are able to lead, you know, very different lifestyles where they work for, you know, 80 hour weeks for four weeks, and then they take three weeks off and, you know, sort of cycle in those ways. So I, th- I thought it was interesting to hear about, but I, I would also be be skeptical again of every organization being able to implement it in the same way. Yeah, I think it's something where obviously this is coming third in the series. So it's starting with this idea that you have very high talent density. Uh, so how, when you have a group of high performing individuals, do you allow them to act as their best selves? And I think the idea is to allow them to have flexibility. Uh, so short, as you were saying, if some individuals want to work 80 hour a week for a few weeks and then take time off, uh, that they have the flexibility to do that. Or if, you know, they want to take half days every Monday and Friday or something, right. That they can do that as well. In in my annoyance and outsider in perspective, in addition to the vacation policy, he talked about how they also have no expensing policy. And he he does talk about like a series of anecdotes of how they built it, where first they the policy was to spend Netflix's money as if it's your own. And then they realized that some people don't spend their own money uh, all that frugally uh, or all that well. So then they said to always act in Netflix's best interest. But then the challenge is like, People don't know what that means. Uh, and I think for for me as that outsider looking in, what was frustrating is it felt like there were all of these unspoken rules and unspoken policies. And short, you reference this with the vacations as well, that, oh, within the accounting team, it's not actually okay to take vacation in the month of January, or you can't take vacation when somebody else on the team is already on vacation, right? There are unspoken rules. And especially on the expensing side, of where does it become too much for dinner? Uh, No, they actually told a story about how somebody traveled to Boston on business and then was spending the weekend with her family and expensed a $150 dinner on Friday night. And they were like, oh, so she was just expensing dinner with her family. And that became like practically a fireable offense is the way that they looked at that. And, you know, for me, that just felt like, who told her that? Like, I don't know. With it, with my company's expensing policy, that is actually entirely okay that you're able to expense a dinner on a Friday night if you're traveling. Even in, And it was frustrating to see how seriously they took it if you broke these unspoken rules um, without actually stating what it is. And at my company, we take the process of norm setting very seriously, where we actually write down at the start of a project, like, what hours are you expected to be online? When, like, at what time can I send you an email and expect a response, right? Like, if I send you an email at 8pm, you should respond. If I send you an email at 11pm, that means it's for the next day, right? We actually write this down at the start of every project. And for me, reading some of these examples in the book, it just felt like this labyrinth, uh, where some people would really just get caught in it. And then some people obviously understand all the unspoken rules and really appreciate it. Right. You have to really trust your employees to go this far. And so you have to have already employees that you really feel have that strong talent density so that you can get to the point of being so confident in them that they're not going to abuse these policies or lack thereof of policies. Uh, But how would you feel about having a work environment like this? So if you were at a company that started 
cutting the red tape and letting you kind of make your own decisions about your vacation and about your expenses, how would you feel? Would you feel better about it or would you feel like, okay, now there's actually a lot of anxiety here about what if I make a mistake and no one's double checking me and then I later on find out it was a mistake? I mean, I think for me personally, I do prefer flexibility. I've dealt with like corporate cultures that had like very explicit policies about you could spend, you know, X dollars, you know, based off of Y reasons. And then you can fly at this rate for this reason. And, you know, which hotel class can you stay at? And it was sometimes really frustrating and annoying where like all of the hotels in that class were sold out and I had to get like special dispensation from like a, you know, someone several levels above for like something that was completely out of my control. And it's just like, I definitely need to be at the client that day. I need to be at this hotel and like, you know, I shouldn't be spending more than I have to, but on this particular day, I do need to spend more than the policy. And the fact that there's all this bureaucracy seems pretty pointless and it could easily be checked on periodically. And so that, that was the part that I thought made sense is that basically they just have finance audit, 10% of expenses. And sometimes they do ask people to like explain why, you know, certain crazy expenses took place, but otherwise they trust people to do a good job. I guess I would say that Eli's point around the the $150 family dinner, honestly, to me, that did seem crazy because it was $150. Like, I don't think it was that she spent money on dinner. It's that she spent $150 on dinner where she was probably paying for her family to have dinner, which is clearly not like what your corporate expense account is generally you know, expected to be allowed to do. So maybe at your company, it is different. And like, that's great if, if you have that. But I think $150 on yourself for one meal does, does seem like a lot. Um, and again, it's like, I've been in cultures where when you take clients out and stuff, there may be like fancy dinners that take place. But that is, again, quite different from, you know, your family. Yeah, my company has a very generous expense policy, I'll say. Should I say that? Mm. Um, I So I go back to your question. I do think that I've been in this situation maybe once. And it was actually when I was on that really high performing, high density, high talent density team that I referenced earlier, even though I was in working at a large corporation, my director allowed a lot of flexibility with the team in ways that he could, which was especially around vacation. And at the time, I was actually doing a business school program, which most people can't believe that I was doing, where I worked for three weeks a month. And then I went to business school for one week a month, like full time for that one week. And it actually seems very similar to a lot of the Netflix stories that were shared of how people use their vacation time where I worked crazy hours for three weeks and then basically took one week off in its entirety. And that was basically just not reported to the large corporation that I was working for because it wouldn't have been really approved by the corporation. And I I think that my director felt comfortable doing it because of the high talent density that we had on the team knowing that I was going to put in the time when I was there and that the other team members would be able to kind of like pick up for me when I was gone and everybody was on board with it. Um, And I think, you know, I really appreciate that that was something that I was able to do, but I fully acknowledge that only worked because of the team that I was on. So we've talked about a couple of the areas where Netflix has eliminated red tape and bureaucracy, including the vacation policy and expense policy. What did you think about employees who are at a lower level than would be typical signing major contracts? So this was mentioned in the chapter on no decision-making approvals needed. Was it really 
that there were no decision-making approvals needed? Were the, did it seem to you that these employees were really acting on their own? And is that logical? Does it make sense that managers and managers of managers are not going to oversee important contracts being signed? So I think that it probably works, but you need to have a lot of information beforehand for it to be reasonable. And so my assumption is that there are clearly standards on like what the department's budget is to spend on, you know, X type of content. And so a lower level employee can make the call to sign something, but they need to know what the budget is and like where the, you know, department sits at that point so that they can be confident that it's, you know, still within whatever the other policy is that's taking place. Because I mean, Netflix is spending, I think I said earlier, $17 billion in 2020, or at least they were planning to. I, I imagine it, it may have uh, ended up being a little bit less given uh, COVID. But the point being that you can't actually just let every person in the company sign up for whatever they want. You do need to have enough information for that to become reasonable. But I do, again, to some of the the acting quickly things that that enables are really valuable. So I do think there's something to be said for not having a six-week process where you need to go up three rungs of the ladder to get a document signed in order for something to take place, because sometimes you need to move quickly and, and giving your employees the flexibility to move when they are acting in the company's best interest is going to allow your company to be a lot more nimble. But again, you need that really high talent density. You need to be able to trust your employees to be able to give them all of that freedom. Yeah, I think that that chapter kind of started with that anecdote of one employee who experienced that before Netflix of having a high urgency consulting contract for $200,000 that required like 20 different sign offs at the company that she was in. Uh, and it took six weeks. And I guess it, it, it didn't really end that story. So I guess she was still able to get it. But she said she was nervous that if she didn't get the sign off quickly, uh, that she wouldn't even be able to get the consultants that she needed. So Given that Netflix needs to be nimble and needs to be fast, I think things like that make sense to not have all of those layers of red tape. Kopech, in, in your kind of skepticism of asking the question, I do think it's true Like that what is portrayed in the book is that all employees, including very low-level employees, are able to make bets. And they actually talk about it as bets. They talk about how you have chips uh, that you're able to put bets on. As an aside, what there was a story in here about somebody, uh, the FedEx guy going and gambling all the money that he had at, in Las Vegas and then making it back so he could make uh, his deliveries the next day or whatever. And I, you know, that's like the second time that we've had an example of an entrepreneur going and gambling all of their money and it working out. So weird aside of that coming up again. <laughs> I wonder if the Under Armour guy had heard the FedEx story and that's why he tried it and just ended up losing all the money. <laughs> he was like, yes, this is right. It worked for him. It must work for me. Um, but they, so they talk about making bets and that you're able to make bets on something with what Reed really emphasizes having the context and the context being what are the priorities of the company? And is this something that's going to help with that? And then what he does is he calls people informed captains and the informed captain is the employee that is able to make that decision. Uh, and there's a process that they need to take in order to make that decision. Um, so the four steps of it are first farm for dissent or socialize the idea. And this is where you essentially like really test the idea with other employees to see how do people react to it. Uh, Second is to test it out, right? So which what data can you make available to see if it's 
worth making a million dollar purchase. Uh, then as the informed captain, make your bet. And finally, if it succeeds, celebrate. If it fails, sunshine it. I really like that they called it sunshine it rather than sunset it. And the point of sunshine is uh, to emphasize the learnings that you have from it. What was challenging about this is it felt like a, there were a, a lot of examples where employees just weren't getting the support that they needed from upper level management, right? Like where in several examples, uh, somebody would ask their manager what they thought of something and they'd be like, well, I don't know, you're the informed captain. Like we hired you to make this decision, which maybe for some people would be really invigorating and make them feel like they own a product. But for me, I just felt like I kind of kept on reading all of these anecdotes and it felt like managers were setting up their team to throw them under the bus and be like, well, you signed that contract, right? Like that was on you that that didn't work out. And they, you know, they clearly, they don't fire people just because a bet doesn't work out. Uh, If you sunshine it and you talk about your key learnings, then they're happy about it. Uh, But it did, it did feel weird that how decentralized the decision-making was and that it just didn't feel that the managers were providing good input to people. I don't know. Did either of you feel that way or did you feel like that it actually did work? I mean, the stories that they told were obviously mostly the really big successes. They did also um, share some of the like the true failures and, you know, people talking about, you know, product experiences that didn't go well. There was like an example where they invested a lot in a a new Wii app and it ended up that people didn't like it as much as the, as the more basic one that like users actually dropped off more. So they just ended up getting rid of it. There was another one where they did something for Android and they they basically it was, again, like completely waste of time. Once by the time it was launched, it, it really wasn't useful. And he recognized that, you know, he should have had, you know, better data along the way to have potentially ended it earlier and saved the company more money. So, I mean, they did seem to show you know, true uh, bets being made where they didn't pay off and still that person like continued to succeed at the company. So that is that is really cool. And I do think that that's that's pretty rare. I think a lot of companies talk about that kind of like risk taking culture and placing bets. But in a lot of environments, people end up getting let go if their bets don't pay out. You know, they, they might succeed if they place a big bet and it it works out. But if it does fail, they, they might struggle. And a lot of cultures do end up, you know, prioritizing for not failing as opposed to prioritizing for making those potentially big, successful bets that could also fail because you might have fear. So it does seem like they've managed to create a culture where people aren't afraid to, to make those big, bold moves, which may not always end up paying off but that they should at least know what are they going to learn when it doesn't pay off. That was another piece that they tried to focus on. So if we're going to put out this big bet and there's a chance that it's going to go to nothing, do we at least get some valuable information that can help us make better bets in the future? And I don't know if you can always figure all that out, but it was, again, interesting to hear about that. They, they were specifically talking around um, creating children's programming in India. And so they, they made a really big bet on that with the idea that they needed to invest more, make it much higher quality so that it could become a, a globally successful piece of content. And so they spent you know, a lot more on Indian content than had ever happened before, and it did pay off. But it certainly could have ended up going poorly, but it at least was going to give them a model for that children's programming more broadly and answer better questions for them beyond just did this one investment work out. Hold that thought about India, because let's come back in a couple minutes to talking about how as Netflix has expanded around the world, its corporate culture has had to adapt. Before we get to that, 
There's one other part of candor that we didn't really describe fully that I want to talk about before we get to the last parts of the book. The circle of feedback. We mentioned it earlier, but we didn't exactly explain how it works. What's the circle of feedback? So I could be misremembering this, but I believe the way the circle of feedback works is similar. I think they basically also call it like a live 360 and that essentially you get a group of people that are working together to go. He said often to a meal like dinner or something like that. And you would spend three hours minimum. He basically said going, you know, person by person and giving feedback to that individual. And so you tell them, what should they start doing? What should they stop doing? And what should they continue doing? And he said the start and the stop should be 75% of what you're talking about. So sort of getting back to, to some of what we talked about earlier about less of a focus on giving construct or positive feedback. It really is more focused on the constructive, you know, negative feedback and, you know, opportunities that people have to grow. And so, you know, each person then does that. Um, it goes all the way around the room. And so each person is getting feedback from every person and giving feedback to every person. I believe he mentioned that usually like sort of the most senior person will tend to go first on taking the feedback so that it sets the standard that, hey, it's okay to to really call them out, to to give them that that negative feedback that's going to help them to be able to grow and that everyone is there to, you know, go through that same experience. I have never been in anything really remotely like that, I don't think. I'm not sure how I would handle it. I feel like I could get comfortable with it, but it would be, I don't know, I think you'd have to have a lot of trust in the people that you're working with to to be able to to really simply appreciate it and not feel like you're being attacked in front of the group. It sounds terrifying. A lot of the examples of feedback that they highlighted in the book, though, felt a bit superficial and you know, it, it felt like it was always about how somebody manages a meeting, like, oh, you're not calling on enough people, you're talking too much. You know, those were the examples. And maybe that's part of just being in a really high talent density culture that is these smaller things that you need to emphasize, you know, with some of the feedback that I've given to people where there's a more fundamental challenge of, motivation or drive or understanding what is going on and taking that next step um, feels much harsher to share in a group context like that. At the end of the book, they talk about how they've had to adapt Netflix's culture to the various regions around the world where Netflix operates. And there's this whole idea of culture maps, which actually comes from another book by Aaron Meyer. Uh, that looks at different nations and how their national cultures can be compared and contrasted with one another. So tell us a little bit about how Netflix has been adapting the corporate culture that we've been talking about so far to the various places that it operates and what kind of regional changes it's had to make. Yeah, so this was interesting because I, I would actually say that I'm a skeptic of culture mapping um, and talking about how culture uh, differs a across countries. And it's just something where I'm always skeptical of when somebody's like, oh, they're going to be like so much more direct in Israel because of the culture. And I'm like, isn't it individuals? Like, what if this is culture? And this is having done an international MBA and my classmates are probably listening to me being like, you learned nothing during this program. Um, but, but wait, Aaron helped uh Netflix do was look at and in the example they show seven examples 
of uh, culture. So for communication, for example, low content to high content evaluation with direct negative feedback to indirect negative feedback. And then they show country by country where they are on this scale. So for example, the evaluating with direct negative feedback, Netherlands is all the way to the left with direct negative feedback. And then they have Brazil, Singapore, and Japan are much further to the right. And then they map Netflix on that so that they can actually see, oh, look, Netflix, uh, based on the culture aggregated from you know a bunch of people who re- responded to an internal survey, uh, our feedback culture is much more direct than in Brazil, Singapore, and Japan. So they need to be aware of that when they launch in those countries to, I think, do two things, which is one, adapt the Netflix culture to the local market a little bit. Um, so they they make small ad- adaptions to the market, but then they are also very honest and transparent with that office of how you are working for a US-based company. We have more direct feedback. Also, Netflix culture specifically has more direct feedback and teaching them and giving them examples and showing them how they can give feedback more directly. And I think that there were there were some good examples of showing how they've done that and how they've gotten you know some of the colleagues in the Japan office to understand how it is okay to give feedback to their managers uh, so that they can continue to have the Netflix culture within those offices. So I, I think it just showed a high awareness of some of the challenges that they have taking this culture global but that they're not trying to abandon the Netflix culture and adapt to the local context always. All right, let's talk about the book in broad terms now that we've gone into a lot of the specifics. So first, let's talk about the pretty unique format of having each of the authors clearly demarcate the sections of each chapter that represent their voice. What did you think about that unique format? Did it add to the book for you or was it kind of repetitive? I loved it. Um, that, that was a part of the book, not, not saying to the book of the whole, but that structure I really liked, uh, because I felt like, and I think we've referenced this already, but Reed was obviously giving the insider's perspective of Netflix, uh, and you know, all of the reasons that he thinks it's been successful. Then Erin would jump in with her examples from the interviews that she had heard as well as often some academic examples. Kopech, I do agree with you that I think Aaron was very skeptical up front in the intro for the book as a whole, but then throughout more uh, sided with Reed and showed how the academic research actually supports what he's saying. And I think she showed she showed some skepticism of, oh, I was worried about this. Or like, you know, when you talk about candor, do you really mean being that transparent? And like, oh, yes, he really does mean being that transparent. So she I think she showed some skepticism, but then generally came down on the side of that. This is something that makes Netflix specifically special. But I, I thought it was really helpful to kind of get both sides there, get the examples, get the academic research and a whole lot of anecdotes throughout. I really liked it too. I often find it frustrating when there are co-authors with like a founder or, you know, the the subject of a of a book because you can kind of see when it's the co-author and when it's the the original, you know, founder, but I I really like the fact that you you could actually transparently see it. They showed you who was writing what 
Um, I think in, in the Kindle edition, at least there is like one mistake where they put Reed's face on something that was definitely written by Aaron. So um, if the editor is listening, feel free to reach out to me and I can give you the page number. But I thought it was a really cool system. And I, I honestly really liked the way that she was asking questions of Reed in the book, because a lot of them were ones that I might have had. And I feel like we might not have gotten there if it was just him writing it himself. I'm not sure if we would have heard him saying like, this doesn't work for everyone, right? Like he he does say that explicitly. And I wonder if he would have focused on the fact that, you know, if you're working in healthcare, you're working in manufacturing, things where you need like perfect quality that you cannot give all this freedom. And so I, I really do think that the the structure was good and, and something that I would recommend, you know, other authors or, you know, co-authors trying to to do in these kinds of situations to really show who's who's writing what. I thought it was it was really interesting and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, I, I like the format as well. And I, I thought the n- fact that it was kind of a dialogue between the two of them kept your interest and it, it kind of added a, a lively aspect to the prose. Okay. Is there anything about the book as a whole that we missed? Is there anything that we should have talked about earlier on when we were talking about specifics? I think we might have touched on it briefly, but but one thing I thought was really interesting was this concept that Netflix is a team and not a family. I think it's kind of antithetical to what a lot of companies try to do in terms of their culture. I've definitely worked at places that that talk about, you know, how we're a family. And I think it's it's always true that you're not actually a family. You are working together. There is a possibility of being fired. I am not able to, you know, fire grandma. And so it really is different when you are working together than, you know, a, tr- a true family. And so I thought that idea of sort of a, a professional sports team as the way that Netflix thought of themselves, you know, there are going to be great people that are there and they're all working together, but it's, you know, going to be for the period of time where they are the best at doing what they are and people may move on in the future and they should be celebrated for, you know, the work that they did, you know, on the way out. But that doesn't mean that like we're a true family where, you know, people can just stick around no matter what. So I thought that that um, concept of of team, not family was was really interesting. All right. So now we get to the big overall question. Do you recommend this book? And why don't you answer the other question that we always associate with that too at the same time? If you do recommend the book, who should read it? I definitely recommend it. I really enjoyed it. I would say it is not about the history of Netflix. We sort of talked about that a little bit, but that's definitely not what's what's really the focus of this. It is about the culture of Netflix and, you know, it has a you know very clear structure that that highlights the areas of the culture that they want to focus on, and I found it uh, a really you know good read. I would say that people who are interested in you know the the culture of Netflix should read this. People who are interested in you know the differences between cultures of different kinds of companies and the the different cultures across countries within a company as well, I think would would definitely get some value out of it. And, you know, frankly, anyone who who wants to to read a, a good business book, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I thought it was is re- relatively unique in the in the structure. And so, you know, worth reading, even if, you know, Netflix itself is not something you're especially passionate about. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think it is incredibly well written. And as, as we've talked about the structure and Reed and Aaron having that conversation with each other. Um, and I agree, it's it's not a book about the history of Netflix, but the fact that Netflix is something that we all know and probably all enjoy and appreciate in our lives. It makes it a little more interesting. And like the examples, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, I remember when that happened, right? Like I remember that being launched. So so that makes it all much more enjoyable to read. I don't know what the point of it is. And I, I think that's where I struggle a bit of 
who should read it because I don't, it's about such broad organizational uh, structure and culture. And I think very few people are in a place to make those decisions for an organization. And certainly the book talks about how they build this culture, but not how they change from a corporate culture to this type of culture. Uh, So it's not clear as a guidebook or something um, who who that's relevant for. I think it's interesting and it's cool to see how they do things and kind of you can have wanderlust about it of like wishing that your company was more like that or wondering if your company could implement some small changes that helps you act a little more like this. Uh, maybe therefore it's something that CHROs should read to understand that culture. But, but that is something where uh, from a business perspective, exactly, there's not much that I feel I can take from this book and apply to my job directly, maybe except um, for some of the feedback suggestions that they have. But I do think it's enjoyable and I think that it's written well and it was a pretty fast read for me. So overall, I think I don't know exactly who I would recommend it for. But I think in general, if you are looking for an enjoyable business book that's really well written and you are interested in organizational culture, uh, then this would be an interesting book to read that I would recommend. And I agree with both of you. I I also enjoyed reading it. I think it's a really well-written book. I think that the format's really great. I think Erin really added a lot to to Reed's writing um, with her kind of counter way of looking at things through a more academic lens. That said, I agree with you, Eli. I'm not really sure who can really go implement these ideas. And I actually, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I don't think they're applicable to most companies. So because you because getting that level of talent density that they describe is just not possible, I think, at, at most companies. So I think you know, you're not going to go read this book and take its ideas and right away implement them, but they'll certainly make you think and certainly make you think about some of the way that your business does things in a different light. At the same time, I think anyone interested in Netflix will enjoy this book. I think that anyone interested in the media industry will actually get a few insights in this book as well. And I think anyone kind of just broadly interested in the ideas of corporate culture, which actually our our last book we read last month, Tape Sucks, Frank Slootman said that corporate culture, in his opinion, is the only distinguishing factor of any company. So if you subscribe to that, then this is really an interesting read for you. Anyway, uh, so let's talk about what we're going to read next month. Yeah. So next month, we're going to read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. Shoe Dog tells the story of uh, Phil starting the company with $50 from his father and growing it into one of the largest shoe companies in the world. It is a fascinating tale, and I'm really looking forward to rereading it. I read it back in 2018 when it, when it first came out. All right. Looking forward to digging into Shoe Dog next month. All right. So how can our listeners get in touch with each of you? And is there anything you want to plug this month? You can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. And you can follow me on Twitter at emitch46. And I think I just want to plug to wear a mask, please. We're still in the midst of this pandemic. So that's what I just want people to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Wear a mask. I'm at Dave Kopeck. It's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. I'll plug two things. I'll put in the show notes a link to my review of this book. 
And I will also put in the show notes a link to a movie. Uh, it's available for free on Amazon Prime if you have that. That's about the early days of Netflix. And it actually is largely driven by the other co-founder of Netflix, not Reed Hastings. So you'll get to hear about Netflix from a different angle. Obviously, this book wasn't about the corporate history, but it might be a nice addition to reading the book. All right. It was great having you with us this month. Don't forget to leave us a review on your podcast player of choice, and we'll see you next month.